You are now tuned into the Hip Hop Learners Podcast, a place for discussions of hip hop literature, both scholarly as well as general audiences. For the first inaugural episode of the podcast, we're speaking to Dr. Anthony Kwame Harrison. Kwame, over the years, has written two books, one titled Hip Hop Underground and the uh, the other more recent publication titled Ethnography. Additionally, he's written numerous articles for various journals, chapters for published books, as well as edited alongside Dr. Gulami Johnson, Sonia Greer, and Kevin D. Thomas, the 2019 publication Race in the Marketplace, Crossing Critical Boundaries. In addition to published work, Kwame teaches sociology and Africana studies at Virginia Tech and has won numerous awards, including the Edward S. Diggs Professor in the Humanities Award in 2019. For this conversation, we are focusing on some of Kwame's earlier publications, including both Hip Hop Underground, The Integrity and Ethics of Racial Identification, published in 2009, as well as his 2006 article, Cheaper Than a CD, Plus We Really Mean It, Bay Area Underground Hip Hop Tapes as Subcultural Artifacts. These works center around the Bay Area hip hop community and stem from Kwame's own experiences living within the Bay community during the very early 2000s. That said, enjoy the podcast. All right, so Anthony Kwame Harrison. Um, I guess to begin with, uh, what, what would you like me to call you? Just Kwame, or I see that's how you sign off your emails. Yeah, please just call me Kwame. Yeah, um, don't call me just don't just call me Anthony. Fair enough. And yeah, and even my students rarely call me Dr. Harrison. So fair enough. So Kwame, uh, I guess introduce yourselves for for people listening at home, if you don't mind, just for a moment or so. My name is Anthony Kwame Harrison. I go by Kwame. I'm a professor of sociology and Africana studies at Virginia Tech, but my academic training is in anthropology. Um, all three degrees are in anthropology. I do work on popular music, and um, historically I've done work on hip-hop. I have a book on hip-hop. I also do work on qualitative research methodologies, and I'm currently working on expanding the breadth of popular music research that I do. And finally, I guess I do some work on what I would call the racialization of space. Yeah, so from my end here, I, I've only read a couple of your, your books, um, well, I guess a couple of your publications, right? So you have mm-hmm. you have two books out, to the best of my knowledge. You have Ethnography, and then you have Hip Hop Underground. Um, so I haven't taken the time in order to really dive into ethnography as of yet, but I have read Hip Hop Underground. And from my perspective, um, I study Canadian hip hop, and I, I'm working on a large-scale oral history project on Canadian hip hop, and it, it has me doing a lot of interviews. Um, and I've I consider myself kind of part of that hip hop identity anyway. Um, and with that, I feel like there's a certain kind of description of what you described in the hip hop underground and also in your, um, I think it was called uh, Cheaper Than a CD, plus we really mean it, but that article on, I guess, cassette culture within the Bay Area, um, I feel like you did a, a really good job at describing, I guess, that underground um, hip-hop community and what that community really feels like for a person, kind of that lived experience on the ground. Um, far too often, I feel like um, from an academic approach, people kind of dive into a scene and they're approaching it from kind of an outsider's perspective. And it comes out, um, it, it comes across that way anyhow. Um, and you had a, a bit of a different approach in doing so, right? Like, um, not only do you identify as a hip-hop artist yourself, um, do you still write or, or perform music at all? Um, 
Yes, I I guess I do more writing and recording than performing. I don't I don't really you could say I perform for myself in my in my bedroom, but yeah. yeah, um this has been a challenging summer for a lot of us in a lot of ways, but of I've been working on a music project with a longtime collaborator um for most of this summer and actually having that space for creativity and the space to um express various ideas and thoughts, not all that people would think of as core hip-hop ideas and thoughts, but certainly some um, through music has been one of the things that has sustained me this summer. Um, yeah, and, and I think if the, project, if the project gets released, and I, it's, it seems like it's on the path to getting released, I think it will be sort of this great encapsulation of all the feelings and sentiments that surrounded me this summer. So yeah, it's something I continue to do. That's amazing. Like, I, I think that that perspective ended up granting you a, a fairly unique perspective anyhow, uh, when it turned, when it came to in terms of writing at the very least. Um, can you kind of elaborate well, on that? Because that is a subject that you talk about in the book, how most ethnographic research at the very least, um, and I guess it, to, for the people listening at home, um, can you describe maybe what the, the whole project was in terms of hip hop underground? Yeah, um, that's a lot there, but I, I certainly can. To begin with, um, ethnography comes out of, um, it comes out of anthropology, really, and it's a form of research that involves someone being essentially within a community and lit, and, and living amongst a community. Although ethnographers do interviews, and I, I did some interviews, there's really some, a little bit of a critique of interviewing because it's, an interview is somewhat seen as sort of this artificial moment of, of information extraction where people, the way people answer interview questions even, are sometimes going to be shaded towards a cultural ideal. So if you could spend time with them and really spend a long-term amount of time with them and be with them every day, you get to see. Someone could say, I'm in, I, I, I'm really clean, but if you live with them for a year, you're going to find out if they're really clean or if they're a mess. And, and it's kind of based on that sort of a principle. So that was coming out of anthropology. That was the kind of research that I was interested in doing. And in one of my more, in one of my recent publications, actually, it's just a, it's a book chapter, but it's on ethnography. I talk about this moment. Um, and it was a moment when I was at a university. Um, I was at a school on the West Coast and I was visiting the school. And at this point, Hip Hop Underground, the book hadn't been published, but, um, I think I was I was in the process of writing it, and I had the students read the opening chapter, or at least the opening, part of the opening chapter, part of where it was at that time. And I remember the students read that, and I came and I did my little, whatever, presentation. And a few students asked questions, I mean, typical questions, good questions. But then one, after a few minutes, one student very quietly, he had been very quiet, and he kind of was looking down as he spoke, but he said, you know, I've been, I, um... I'm from San Francisco or from the Bay Area, and I'm so I consider hip hop close to my heart. Um, and I find that, and I've probably been on these very park benches um, in Golden Gate Park that you're talking about, that you're opening talking about. And he said, whenever I read academic treatments on hip hop, I always find myself getting defensive. This is the first time that I've read something where I didn't feel that way. And my answer, and I just sort of smiled and said, that's ethnography. And I ended up writing about that just recently now. But I think that ethnography is, at least the way it's done in in the 21st century, or the way I believe it should be done, it, it has a long and troubled history. And we don't necessarily need to get into that. Um, just, uh, I mean, 
to make a long story short around colonialism and anthropologies um, being to some degree enlisted in a colonial project. But when you, the way that um, ethnographers do research in the 21st century, or the way that I believe they should, is really as being members of communities and um, trying to do research with people instead of on people. And that can involve various degrees of insiderness or outsiderness, I guess, when you enter the the, the field. And, and in some ways, um, I'm not from the Bay Area, although some people that have read my work have asked me that. So in some ways, I was an outsider doing this project that was on independent hip-hop in the Bay Area. But um, I did grow up... Um, having a deep passion for hip-hop music and it became something that sort of as a struggling graduate student kind of struggling to find a dissertation topic to suddenly be able to pair this passion and this interest with some of the ideas that I was having and really ideas around mostly it started from ideas around race but this was the very end of the 20th century, start of the 21st, so kind of the late 90s and 2000s, there were also a lot of exciting ideas about the potential for this new platform that was the Internet and what does this mean for music distribution and music creation. So the project came together around kind of, I think, those two themes, like power in music and and the, the power and agency that artists have in music, but also looking at this space in California where you really had this multiracial community of hip-hop artists, and I firmly believe that hip-hop music is a black diasporic art form. So what does it mean to have people of all different racial backgrounds participating in this and what can that tell us about the way that race works in society? So that was essentially the project. You mentioned not being from the Bay Area. Um, I believe you mentioned it in the book, but was it Michigan that you were originally raised? <laughs> Massachusetts. Massachusetts, okay. <laughs> yeah, the other M. Yeah. Um, why, why the Bay Area then? Because there's obviously a thriving hip-hop scene that happened in, in Boston and in Massachusetts as well. I just interviewed Rex um, a couple days ago for a different project for a radio program. Um and we we had a, a pretty fruitful conversation about the the hip hop scene that was going on in Bas in uh, in Massachusetts around the same period of time. He's from Lawrence, um, but um, why why travel out to to the Bay when you had something kind of at home? Well, that's I mean, yeah, that's that's a fascinating question, and actually something that I don't I haven't written about much, but I. I guess I officially moved to the Bay in April and my plan, I had planned to move earlier in the year or during that winter, but my parents, um, were, April of what year? um, 2000, 2000. Okay. And my parents, as they were getting older, they kind of, I mean, they, they were just like, well, it's a winter. And if you don't necessarily need to go now, maybe you could spend the winter with us. Um, just sort of help us out, you know, shovel snow essentially yeah. <laughs> and do some other things um but um so i said sure yeah i i i will um i don't need to go out there until april i don't need i'm not in a big rush in that way and and you definitely want to help out your parents if they're asking you to so i spent i just coincidentally i spent a lot of time in the um boston scene that winter and i mean i, I was it was a little bit of a drive, but I was driving to Boston 
probably weekly, I, I, I had a video camera and somehow that video camera opened some doors for me. Um, someone asked for a videotape of something because the person they had who they wanted to videotape it didn't do it. And so I did spend a lot of time. Um, I have a, a bunch of, I think they're high eight cassette tapes of, of videos that I need to transfer and look at at some time. But, but so, so that was kind of a primer to going out to the Bay. But the, I think the reason why I was drawn to the Bay, I would probably, I mean, just to be frank, it probably comes down to, this group called hieroglyphics yeah and hieroglyphics um they they were they they were involved they're, they're i mean they they still do things but they were involved in the in in the independent scene in 2000 and it wasn't so much that i was focused on them but i had been a fan of theirs and i had been a fan of the major label releases that they came out with in around 1993 1994 yeah, maybe 1995 yeah, I guess all their solo projects too, right? Fear itself and Souls and Mischief. Yeah, Mischiefs, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so Del the Funky Homo Sapien, um, Souls of Mischief, yeah. Casual. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll. Uh, so, so I. But then I realized that they had just disappeared, and I was always wondering sort of what happened to them. And I had a friend, and I believe he was living in San Francisco at the time, or he visited, and he just came back, and he had these compilation CDs that had a bunch of independent artists but it also had three or four new hieroglyphic songs so seeing these new hieroglyphic songs kind of said okay so they are making music and, and it, this was this was the early days of the internet so i started to search around a bit and as i was looking around i um i started to just i started to notice these other collectives and groups so um living legends would be a big one um, board oh, stiff would be another yeah. anticon to some degree, and these were and and I would say that these were the um more of the people that were on the forefront of of what what I see as this kind of independent movement in the Bay Area. By the time I got to the Bay, this group Living Legends had already relocated to to l a so so and but still, most of the people I spent time around and the young people who were often working on their first album or their first project, they had they had grown up being Living Legends fans or Board Stiff fans or fans of other groups, and these, these had been the model for them. But it was really the, I think, the diversity I saw in these groups. Um, and to use Living Legends and Board Stiff as two examples, to have um, a collective of artists with a range of different racial identities, and I thought that was something fascinating. And, and, and I, I, I saw that in Boston to a certain degree as well, but I think I knew of the Bay Area earlier and I and I think the collective model was more prominent in the Bay Area where I think if you were talking about that in Boston, uh, first it would mostly be black artists and white artists were in, in, in the Bay Area, you had artists of other racial identities, but, but um, I also think they were more just individual artists who might collaborate, but it wasn't still like we're a collective. When I was reading the book, from what I recall, there was almost a hesitation in order to um, kind of operate yourself as an MC within that scene rather than an outsider um, in that debate whether you should end up being an insider or an outsider was something that you were kind of wrestling with. Um, what ultimately made you kind of decide that it's 
it's best in order to actually perform at these open mics and to to start a job at Amoeba to like kind of live at this uh, live in the lifestyle rather than just observe it. Well, I think the performing part was the big hurdle for me. Um, the job, uh, so I, I, as you mentioned, I part of I had a job working at at Amoeba Music, which was at the time the largest in their San Francisco store at the time was the largest independent record store in the country. Um, was I know it record than stores the, are sub- the Hollywood or that one hadn't opened yet. Gotcha. Okay. So that one opened at about maybe. I think it was by the end of my, about a year after I had started there, some, a lot of people were leaving to help start that one, actually. Um, the person who gave me my job was leaving to help start that one. Um, but what happened, so that was more just practical, like, okay, um, you, you need to fund this research, you have some grants out there, but you don't want to just ca- count on these grants, and also, where better to work than a place that has other hip hop artists working there that all the artists bring their product to. It just created a, um, a situation. It was actually, it worked out almost ideally and things seldom work out ideally with ethnographic research, but they were kind of like, well, we'll give you a job, but you're just going to be on the cash register all day. Most people start on the cash register and move somewhere else, but we, yeah, if you're, if you're telling us right now that you're going to leave, you're not, this isn't your career. You're just here to do research. We're just going to have you at the cash register. And I was like, that's great. That works. Yeah, I want to be I, I want to be the face. I want people to say, that's the guy who works at Amoeba. I want to be visible. And it worked. Um, art, I mean, I would get into clubs free sometimes. I would have artists come out and seeking me because they're like, oh, hey, this guy works at Amoeba. If he knows about us. Like, people would come in the store and ask me to recommend music. So it just created this great role for me. Um, that was the Amoeba thing. But um, I had – anybody who knows me for a long time will say, like, I wrote I wrote raps back in high school and, and stuff. There was, like, one year when I think I wrote a rap in just about everybody's yearbook. <laughs> I wrote a little rap or something. So, so I, I had this – I guess this, um, I rapped a few times on college radio in, in college when I was at the University of Massachusetts. So I had this in my background. Um, but this was a moment, and I think particularly amongst, uh, when I went out there, I think I was imagining to do research with the groups that I already knew about that were already established. Yeah. Um, and, I think they were more. I'm 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 speaking generally here, but but it is based on real conversations I've had with people. Um, they a lot of them were more prone to like, oh yeah, okay, someone else is trying to rap. Like now everybody's trying, everybody's trying to be a rapper, and and that was really about I would say the domestication of the means of production, the means of how you make music. So the idea that um, home recordings were very accessible and and even even moving from a four track recorder to just garage band or having things on a computer they were just they were accessible and things that people would have in their homes anyway um so that movement just created a spot where you see this this any essentially i mean it's an overstatement but essentially anybody who's into hip hop can make this decision that i want to put out a series of songs and and compared to the 19 
nine early 1990s let's say that's that's the musical landscape we live in right now if 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 you are into music and if you play music of any any sort you can make some recordings and you can put put up a soundcloud page or something and at least imagine yourself as being you know a, a someone who who makes music um yeah that yeah, was distribution platform yeah yeah that was different in the 90s and it was particularly different in hip-hop although other places i mean it, local hip-hop outside of a few major cities was still something that was kind of uh, still a, an idea that people were trying to get their heads around in the 90s so so i i was kind of like i i, I went out there and i was ha- if i was going to be working with these artists and if i had already seen en- enough um Either with conversations with them because I had met met many of them, and or in interviews I'd read, I see that they were a little frustrated with it. Now everybody's trying to rap. I didn't want to be that person, and I thought that if I was really trying to, you know, if, if you're spending a year in a place, you you don't you can't be necessarily patient in making friends. I mean, you you hope to be able to establish these relationships within within a few months and that's a difficult thing for me just based on the person I am I can't kind of force and manufacture relationships and create relationships <laughs> they either happen organically or they don't but yeah. I didn't think saying I'm trying to rap would help me <laughs> to create those relationships so I intentionally just had the stance that that's not why I'm here and that's not what I'm trying to do and if anything that would be a distraction but then what I realized was first of all the people I ended up spending time around were people who were fans of Board Stiff, of Living Legends, of Anticon, and they were much more open to um, to just you know, hey, let's make music. I mean, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't, they were part of the problem. I guess they were part. They, they were so, so they were they. So um, that's where I think I write about it as this key moment, but I almost saw that my hesitancy to get, if I, if you're going to the open mic every single week, if you're here, if you know everybody, if you're nodding your head in the crowd, so everybody knows you're into music, we've had conversations with you, we know you're into hip hop, why don't you get on stage? And people were really starting to press me with those questions. And then there were a few artists that I was um, friends with and would go home every, with, go home with them every Sunday and they'd play the new music they were making they were always like hey if you want to you know and, and we had talked enough that they knew that i had rapped before and i had some old rap hey if you want to record your old raps just come over and do it and i was like no 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 and i realized that i was acting more awkwardly by putting up this line between producer and consumer where for many of them they didn't see that at all so i just had a complete change turnaround um and that's the moment that the book opens with the moment where that really hit home where um, I just said, okay, from this point on, I'm going all in because everybody wants me to, and why not? One thing I do want to say about that is, and this kind of comes down to a dimension of ethnographic research, is that uh, my I am convinced, and and I mean, ethnographic research is, I mean, it's not objective. It's it's subjective, but you kind of say who you were. You have to be transparent about how you know what you know. Um, I am convinced that my racial identity helped facilitate that. 
And I, I, I am, I'm, I'm quite certain that it was easier for me as a black man with dreadlocks, um, to, to, at the time, to, to, that people kind of expected me and, and, and opened this space for me to be a participant. Would you this, say you were I, just kind of passing an off, like an authenticity check kind of? Well, 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 I mean, this, this is something that, this is something that I didn't, I mean, it was kind of a gradual consciousness of an awareness. I definitely didn't, I mean, this wasn't part of any plan, Sure. but, but what's notable is, and, and I think one of the things I try to grapple with, particularly in the publications that are about race on my research, is that this scene presents itself. And I think, I mean, this scene presents itself as an underground, as a, as a, as a colorblind scene. And by colorblind, I mean, it's not about anyone's race. It's about your skill. And yes, that's true to a point, but I also think where as an African American, I was, as a black man, I was almost like, okay, if I'm into hip hop, yeah, that makes sense. I think if I was a white person in that scene at the same time, I don't think that people would have been encouraging me to the same extent to record. And I think there would have been just a little more, okay, let's show, you know, you, you have to show what you're, what you, you have to show your skill or you have to, you, there would be a few more hurdles. And I think that that speaks to an important way in which race does matter, even though at the end of the day, it is, I mean, it is about your skill. If you're not, if if you're terrible or something, people wouldn't want to listen to what you did. And if I if I was terrible, I probably wouldn't have been as welcomed. But people almost expected it, and they almost said, "Okay, here's a black person with a notebook at a hip hop event, at a coffee shop with a hip hop open mic. You must be an MC. Are you writing rhymes?" And I'd be like, "No, I'm writing field notes." Yeah, yeah, I I see the the same thing on on my end to some degree as well. Um, however, it's it's slightly different. So. Um, one, I'm not doing ethnographic research, and I think it would probably be more relevant in ethnographic research, particularly. Um, I'm also white, like my father's Ukrainian, my last name's Kuchma, mm-hmm. um, my mother's Scottish. Um, but I'm doing oral history interviews throughout the country, and I've interviewed a, a few hundred hip-hop artists throughout uh, different regions, uh, different kind of underground communities, and specifically focusing on this roughly the same era that you're looking at, uh, from about like the mid-90s up until the very early 2000s, but uh, most of that focus ends up being the very late 90s kind of early 2000s and that change of the century um Mm -hmm. whenever i end up doing one of these interviews it's always um there's there's themes that end up coming up all the time but i tend to end up getting the best interviews when my um when my kind of um, I guess experience as part of the community itself. I was never a rapper, but um, I'm a fan, and I'm not just a researcher. I, I am truly a fan of hip hop, and mm-hmm. if I can flex, uh, I guess my knowledge to some degree within the first few minutes of the interview, and at the very least get the uh, research participant kind of on board with the fact that I'm similar to them in some degree. Like we can talk shit all day about Anticon or um, about Rhyme Sayers or Aesop Rock or or um, dig into kind of deep underground pockets of whatever you want to talk about, and I can usually hold my own in that conversation. Um, that allows me an in in order to be in order to get a much more fruitful conversation. And I always yeah. kind of attribute that to that authenticity check. Um, I think, yeah, yeah. 
Do you want to speak yeah, I would. I would say. I would say that's that's. I mean, they're they're going to want to know that you know what's up, and they're not going to. And they they. Someone doesn't want. This is just someone who decided to do a project on hip hop. I mean, I guess anytime someone's interested in interviewing you, and yet, unless you're a star, unless you're like have all these interviews, there's something flattering about it. But still, to really open up, they're going to want to know that you really kind of get what they mean and understand the same space. And, and that's exactly the point. I, I, I think, I think that as a black artist, I mean, as a black person, <laughs> cause I wasn't an artist yet. I was given the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And, I... and, and, and yeah, and that's, and, and all I, and my only point is that speaks, I mean, it says that race does matter in some ways. Yeah, I think to, to your point more specifically, um, whenever I do these interviews, I often talk to a lot of people um, from very much white communities, right? So I'm dealing in Canada and I'm, I'm dealing with people in Saskatoon or Vancouver Island um, or Manitoba, so Brandon or Winnipeg. Um, and for the most part, these are, are largely white communities, even within the hip hop kind of spectrum. Um, so the hip hop communities themselves are, are largely white. Um, that said, there's often black members of that community and usually whenever I speak to them and I start talking about how they kind of grew up and how they got interested in, in hip-hop and maybe how they made their first few connections um, and those friendships and how that ended up kind of fostering into making music and and kind of going further in their career often the conversation ends up lying with um, I was a kid in school and in the elementary kind of yard um, I was into rap music, and because I was black, um, the color of my skin really ended up um, kind of situating me as kind of a cool or popular kid that might also be into this rap music, and that ended up bringing me some connections that otherwise wouldn't have had. But I think in most cases, even in these kind of white communities, I think race still has something largely to, to do with how people are kind of indoctrinated into the community to some degree. Um, and I think there is kind of again that authenticity check of oh this guy's this guy's authentic because of the way he looks um, he resonates with hip hop culture um, maybe that's a little bit of a um, a unique or kind of foreign concept for somebody growing up in a white community and then they're gravitated towards that individual. Um, but you see that type of conversation occur all the time, not just in one or two conversations, but I've had maybe 30 or 40 different conversations where that story in some form or another has been reiterated. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's exactly along the lines I'm talking about. And I think that that's kind of, it's, 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 I guess, affirming for me to, to, to hear that. So where I was, I mean, and I think I've, I've had a few of those conversations, but where I was more lo looking at the way that I was received as a researcher and the way that that path was created, yeah, that's that's ex ex the exact thing. I'm sort of curious about. This is a fast. I mean, and coming back to your question about why the Bay Area, this isn't. I mean, I the reasons I gave you were. I mean, if I had to pick the key reasons, those were as accurate as I could be with them. But I think it's it's also um, fascinating to think about how these dimensions around race and hip hop play out differently in um well to just throw three examples out there one in a place like the bay area that at least has a history of being diverse and being um progressive 
um, a place like Boston, which certainly has diversity along the lines of blackness and whiteness in terms of communities, um, and, and beyond that, but, 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 but those are, are prominent and, and, and really, really prominent, but also it has a history of, kind of being quite a segregated city, and if you go back a few decades, having some real um, racial tensions around um, busing and other things, even into the 80s, um, um, some things. Um, so it's sort of a more um, separated, um, old-school East Coast city. And then you go to another space, which is overwhelmingly white. And how does hip-hop look in that space? And, and those are just some fascinating, I think, differences and comparisons. I was, I think I was a little... Um, I, I, I think I was wrong. I mean, as a fan of the scene, and this is this is a this is a challenge because I was a fan of the scene. And I came sort of came to the project from a position initially from a position of being a fan of the music, but as a fan of the scene, I think I was hopeful and thinking that maybe within this Bay Area progressiveness. California progressiveness. There was some, there was a a a a story and a and a story that was would be saturated with optimism about the future of race relations in our country. Yeah, and, I you think know that, these are. I think that progressive kind of touch there that you noted on is is really important. Whenever I deal with a community that's close by to California or kind of the West Coast of the United States of, so say, like Vancouver Island, for example, um, a lot of the community there is based off of a lot of the same ideologies that are prosperous in places like L.A. or the Bay Area um, or San Diego, like these type of communities, right? Oftentimes, there's a lot of traveling back and forth between these, and you end up getting that kind of progressive commentary throughout the scene right um to the point of even like some like straight edge kids and, and stuff like that right um so very much in terms of um like gender equality racial equality animal rights ad advocacy that kind of thing ends up getting talked about a lot um and that's kind of the ethos that they um, that they bring forward and present themselves as. Um, I think if people within that community um, don't end up holding those same sort of values, they would end up getting ostracized to some sort of degree within that community, um, or at least separated into a different kind of sub-community within that. Um, and even within a, a white community, um, which in large part, I think Victoria ends up kind of being, although there is some diversity there, but it's definitely not as diverse as a place like San Francisco. Um, I think those same sort of ideological values are are still carried forward across the border, but I feel like that is in large part because they're taking a sort of ideology, a philosophy from those regions that you're focused more on. Um, like someone like Mocha Only, for example, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but mm -hmm. um, Mocha Only and Prevail, um, they were friends. They would travel down to, to San Diego. They would travel to San Francisco, um, and they ended up doing so because they found that um, I guess kind of a similar way to, to yourself to some degree, but they, they found that those were hot pockets for the culture and the culture as they 
kind of saw it. Um, so they would travel down for no other reason, right? They weren't traveling down specifically for shows. They weren't traveling down to collect 12-inch singles to play on the radio. And these kind of things would happen as well. Um, but that, this was different. They were going down to live there for a period of time, one to two years, uh, to just immerse themselves in the culture um, that they loved so much. And when they would come back, they came back around 93, 94. Um, a lot of those elements start getting kind of put into the the Victoria hip-hop scene um, and those elements I, I, I really mean like those ideological values um, get carried forward um, but it's like directly from the regions that you're you, you were working on yeah and that's actually that's something I didn't touch on as much and I probably I mean I think my story about why the barrier was very much personal to my fandom and my experience but the other thing is yes there is this um Kind of with this progressiveness, and particularly when you apply it to hip hop, there's a long history of really do-it-yourself production that starts with, I mean, that everybody identifies as starting with Too Short, which would be in the early '80s, yeah. but it continues to to pass through. And um, I would say that, I mean, LA as well to some degree, but 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 I would say that even the way it's kind of envisioned and imagined. Um, in the late 90s, I mean, probably even in the early 90s, but in the late 90s, the Bay the Area Cafe. was the... Oh, wait, yeah, sorry. The, yeah. Yeah, it was the best place to... It had the most kind of vibrant, independent music scene. And and independent slash DIY music scene. So, so, so there was... so And even though you had that happening in Boston and in Philadelphia and other places as well, I think that those communities were much smaller. Um... One thing I'll credit Amoeba Music for this, um, and, and other outlets, that retail outlets would take artists, um, would, would accept they had the space and they had a, a policy really of, of sort of buying products directly from artists, not putting it on consignment and paying them when it gets, when, okay, we'll hold your CD and when it gets sold, we'll pay you back. They would just buy it. And that's something. I mean, if you're a 17 year old kid who just put out your first, CD and to see it there in or or tape and to see it there next to Tupac, you know, because your your name begins with a T as well. Yeah. You're right there next to him. Suddenly, you feel that you know validated. Even I mean, all the energy you get from being a devoted fan gets gets amplified when you're like, I'm not just a fan. I make this stuff. And there it is, right here. You can go to the store and buy it. We were talking about, I guess, um, people traveling down, so say like Mocha Only or Prevail, traveling down to um, these places in order to absorb themselves in the culture. Um, when you were within the Bay Area and within San Francisco and surrounding area, did you see um, a lot of people kind of feeling confident in their own scene or did you see a lot of people going to places like new york or atlanta or la um specifically to um kind of maybe be a part of a even more authentic or seen as authentic um hip-hop culture you know that's that's a that's a fascinating question um i mean Living Legends, about the time I arrived in the Bay, they were relocating to L.A. I think they were relocating to L.A. because they had um, 
I mean, the, the, I know that I know that several members were originally from LA, so in some way there may always be an anchor to go home. But I also think they were reaching a point in their popularity where they were um, just trying to think about, you know, what's the next step. And I think that LA having more of an, I guess I'd say, a well-rounded entertainment um, environment. And and having stronger music industry connections was probably just a practical move for those reasons. Um, th this is just what I speculate. Um, so so they were so they were interested in going there. Um, I think that there was always some reverence for a few prominent crews from LA and or older artists from LA. Certainly, I was fortunate to to tour the country with AC alone, and I know that Freestyle Fellowship had. I mean, Freestyle Fellowship in in any West Coast, particularly West Coast independent hip hop scene, um, people are going to look up to Freestyle Fellowship as really founders and, and legends, um, but also crews like Shapeshifters and, and 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 other people who were around around L A. But um, I would also say that um, you know I was attending school at Syracuse University, and anybody who knows the East Coast. Syracuse is not New York City, but still it was Syracuse, New York. And I think there was this, I think that people, I mean, some people, I, they just would attach like, oh, yeah, he's from New York. And I, I think that people looked up to that in a certain way. I mean, some people looked up to that in a certain way. But um, outside of those things, I think there was a lot of pride in the Bay Area. And if anything, I had more experience with people from out of town who, I mean, similar to your story, people that moved to the Bay Area from other places that were living there. Or I had actually the music collaborator that I've been working on the album this past summer. I met him because he was visiting for a week or something, and we had a common friend, and they were like, oh, you two should go out because you're into underground hip-hop, and that's how we met. So I, I would witness more people traveling to the Bay Area and being like, I'm into independent hip-hop, and here I am, and really soaking that up. So I think there was a lot of pride in in the Bay Area. Apologies for the interruption here. At this point in the interview, my audio ended up getting quite quiet. I've corrected it in post, but we did end up having to kind of stop for a second and kind of recuperate. So that is what happened here. Sorry, how how collaborative was the the Bay Area scene when you were a part of it? In terms, and I understand on a local level it would have been collaborative, but um, how um, how extensive did that those collaborations really reach? Like whenever I deal with the Canadian scene, for example, you have these pockets kind of spread around the country. So you'll have Victoria, then you'll have Saskatoon, then you'll have Brandon, etc. Um, and you see collaborations even before the internet age. Um, you see large-scale collaborations between those different regions. Um, did you feel that people were reaching out, or like people were traveling back and forth, uh, people from San Diego maybe traveling to San Francisco for collaborations, or people from Boston or the East Coast traveling forward um, for work, or was it mostly handled kind of locally and concentrated there? That would be, um, that's a good question. I, I mean, there was certainly a lot of travel between Southern California and, and LA particularly and the Bay Area in terms of, but I, I see that 
more just in terms of kind of touring and performing. People would would make those trips. Um, partnerships, to 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 some degree, I in my experience, I I think about it more as a hand as a handful of examples, and I think one of the things about um, about ethnographic research and my ethnographic research particularly is I would say there's maybe a circle of 20 or so people that I was really kind of in touch with and paying attention to exactly what their movements were during that time. Outside of those 20 or so, my awareness is no more than an average fan's. And that doesn't say I wouldn't like see somebody and be like, oh, I know this person and talk to them. But I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention to a lot of artists in, in detailed ways to see how much that was going on. But I definitely, I mean, just two examples that I can throw. I know that um, Sage Francis, who's from Providence, was, um, he was coming out to the Bay Area and starting to do some work with Anticon. And I, 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 I recall that. Um, I know that there were collaborations between Rhyme Sayers out of um, Minneapolis and some of Anticon. I also, um, you were talking about Mocha Only. I know that Kirby Dominant and Mocha Only were doing things together a lot. Yeah, they're Dominant Mammals projects. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. What about, what about uh, Buck 65 and 62? Were they making trips up there to work with Anticon at that period of time? Because they were the Sebutones, that would have been. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, and now that you mention it, I, 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 I'm aware of that. I'm probably as aware of it because I would see like the CD in the store than because I was talking to them. But yeah, yeah, I, and, and so, so I think, um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, Anticon is their own. I mean, in some ways, they they're their own. I mean, they were integrate. They're they're integrated. And they're part of the scene, but they also kind of created their own scene or, or their own series of connections, but I definitely think that they were viewed as an important enough kind of entity and that was home-based in in Oakland that a lot of people were making those trips with that, that yeah, in a, in a spectrum of, of kind of like-minded and like-sounded artists, um, people were coming out and working with them. So I, I see them as one important magnet, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I often forget that Anticon is is from the Bay, um, and they identify with that to some degree. But um, but not really because they they moved out there. They they I mean most of them moved most of them or, or a, a handful of them moved from other places. Yeah, like I'm aware of of Subitones and Dose One and Alias and whatnot, but um, that whole movement I, I feel like is a much more kind of globally connected movement. Um, if that yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, and yeah, and the other thing, I'm not sure this is as much collaboration, but um, um, one an important person for me was um, uh, the Shane, who was the. I mean, he did a lot of things, but 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 he um, ran a an independent store called Below the Surface. And it was an independent hip hop store, and he um, he he had a lot of um, a lot of international there, there i mean there was a big international market for his music there was such an international market i believe it was finland i believe at one point he went to finland to consider opening a second store in finland because he was getting so many orders from finland <laughs> but then he came back and was like you know it's just like 10 10 people but they buy everything <laughs> so he came back by saying ah it's not worth it but but i think about some of his global reach and i know that 
that he was sell that he was um selling a lot of units i mean particularly in 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 Europe but i also think in some ways and and i i mean i not that i shouldn't say i hate to bring it back to this but obviously as i've said living legends were an important collective in my evolution of understand of thinking about this as a as a significant project and they have this mythology kind of around them i mean it's i guess it's true but i just want to say it's what this is the folklore that people talk about about um their trips to europe um about their collaborations with uh a uh an MC from Belgium named Crucial, um, and many trips to Asia too. So, so, so in some ways they had this, you know, we're kind of small time independent local, but we also have these global connections and we go around and when we encounter people, we make music with them. Yeah. That aspect is, is fascinating. And the fact that Shane was, was selling large numbers or at least apparently large numbers to places like Finland. Um, whenever I talk to people specifically in areas like Saskatoon that are creating very kind of weird and wonky, um, style hip hop, like something they consider it like Saskatoon folk rap, um, it's, I guess, similar to maybe some old, like, Sage Francis records, for example. Um, in Factor has worked extensively with people like Mike and Nine, so that kind of makes sense in terms of that as well. Um, but a lot of those records, um, even just the, the very local Saskatoon rap, um, was being sold mostly overseas, um, places like Germany and places like Japan, um, and then even like kind of a, a large concentration over in Russia as well, um, to the fact that they were they were doing more overseas tours at some periods of time than, than Canadian tours. Um, Canadian tours specifically is kind of hard to, to manage because you have the prairies, which takes so long to drive through and you don't really get anywhere, right? Um, so there's this big like emptiness going from Toronto, if you're driving um until you end up getting to a place like saskatoon and then to calgary so it's canadian tours are kind of hard to manage in a lot of cases um but what you would have as a result of that is a lot of tours overseas japan belgium kind of france mm. germany etc yeah. and they were selling large numbers like there was a um there was a record store owned by a guy called shin in japan and he would buy everything and buy like 200 um, copies of individual records there was a story that i was uh, from an interview that i ended up doing with a saskatoon rapper named nalto um and he's also worked with factor who's again worked with like mike and nine and whatnot in the past and um they're part of uh, fake four records which is handled by chesky if you're aware of him uh, mm -hmm. from connecticut so anyways uh, nolto very underground saskatoon rapper and definitely fits in that category um I know Nalto pretty well. He's a lawyer in, in Saskatoon, and I think most people that know him, um, maybe if they know him on a bit more of a personal basis, they're going to know that he's a rapper. But I think most people that kind of deal with him, sometimes he's on the TV um, giving kind of um, his thoughts on different law issues and stuff like that on the local news. Um, most people don't associate him with the rapper, but him and his girlfriend ended up going out to Japan on a tourist trip um, just a, maybe 10 years ago or so. Um, so a few years after they stopped making kind of heavy music um, or being heavily involved in making music. And um, they heard some Nalto songs in a mall randomly in Japan. Um, 
like the that that's crazy that would never yeah. happen here in canada but the the love for this kind of weird and independent hip-hop is is far-reaching um and they really gravitate towards these kind of really rare obscure independent markets um I, I always found that super fascinating and i think um, coming from canada that's something that i think i was kind of aware of going into the project to some degree um just because i'm from canada yet i know more u.s-based artists than than canadian ones maybe that's changed a little bit now doing this project for so long but um definitely when i went into it that was the case um i, I knew very little about my own country um but I knew a lot of what was going on in Canada, um, and it's, or sorry, a lot of what was going on in the U.S. Um, I think in a lot of cases we don't necessarily value our own contributions, but other places really value them. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would, I would fully agree. Or, or there's just these these possibilities to find these pockets, and I mean, I'm not sure if if the situation in the mall was because there's a huge market. I mean, I guess if someone's buying 200 of everything, there is a big market, but it's also maybe, you know, I, I feel like, I, I feel like this is true of, of classic hip hop, sort of late eighties, early nineties hip hop. But I think it's also true of a lot of the independent stuff that's been going on since then, that some of the people who are involved in making this music, not all, but certainly some of the people are, poised to be in positions later in life or even at a point in life where they at least have some decision-making power to say like what songs is let's say um, NBC Sports going to be playing as they cut to commercial or what songs you know if, if we have this if if I mean at a smaller level if in the store someone's managing the store but they're really into this kind of music so when people walk into the store they're going to hear this kind of music but it, but just to get to key individuals who just happen to be at this kind of these crossroads where they have a chance to have that music broadcast and heard even if it's not a everybody doesn't necessarily know what it is it's still it kind of keeps that beat out there in the world you uh, earlier you ended up mentioning the term DIY, and I, I really wanted to end up talking about the the article that you ended up publishing. I believe before the book, right? It was a number of years before the book came out. The cheaper than CD plus we really mean it article. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. That article specifically, I find again just fascinating because it really encapsul- uh, encapsulates um, a specific kind of era that resonates very much in terms of a lot of the local scenes within Canada, but specifically an area like Vancouver Island, for example. Um, you have people like, again, I'll, I'll reference Mocha only, um, but he would have, I don't know how many tapes he ended up putting out in the 90s, but more than a handful anyhow. Um, and it, was, it wasn't just the quantity of tapes, but it was how they represented the tape as kind of a pure hip-hop aesthetic and it was all it was all about the tapes man is what he would say during records right um and in addition to that you would have little like scribbles on the back of these handmade cassettes that were done out of photocopier um at local staples or best buy or whatever at that period of time um and they would 
they would say things like, um, if you think the quality is shitty, um, then go somewhere else. This is underground. Like, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's supposed exactly. to sound this way, right? Um, that was the, the type of conversation that was talked about. And it wasn't just Mocha only, but you had Ishcan, you had, um, you had Telepathics, you had all these little independent groups that are putting out these tapes in a large number. And it's all, kind of regarding this kind of DIY aesthetic that you touch on in the article and I think it's I think it's really important. The article kind of opens up talking about how the cassette is really important to hip hop culture and it has its roots as kind of the hip hop medium um rather than the the record which is um I guess often considered because DJing is the um like a main element of rap music, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my DJ friends love that. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it was. I mean, it, I think the 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 beginning of that article came. I mean, the origins of that article came out of that just just that same sentiment of of knowing how how much people love tape. I mean, just knowing how much people love tapes, how much people how much. People took pride in the in the lo-fi kind of aesthetic of like tape hiss and the, all these imperfections were 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 signaling something that's really important. But then, as I went back and as I looked, um, as I started to do like the background research, I realized, wait a minute, yeah, cassettes are. I mean, this is how hip hop music traveled, really. And 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 yes, um, vinyl would be the highlights, like the the, the DJs in the park, the big events were 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 vinyl but in terms of the everyday how is hip hop moving in the in the I mean even prior to being recorded like like cassette tapes that were made of 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 some of these shows and events and how those would circulate but then even like throughout the 80s it was a boombox and it was a cassette tape so yeah I I at least made that argument one of the funny things that I, I want that you, this observation brings me into, and if you want, we can get, you can we can circle around and get back into if you want me to say more about the cassette tapes particularly. But one of the things it brings me into is, um, I think doing the project that I'm involved in, having a book that ends up being called Hip Hop Underground. I've spent a lot of time, and I'm not going to say I'm, I'm successful, and I don't know if you can ever have success, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about what is underground. And what makes something underground? And I mean, there there are a lot of things that you can talk about with with, with uh, ideology. You can you can mention certain things about you know how many units are you selling. You can you can talk about certain sound qualities. I mean I mean there are all certain ways. There are, there are various ways of doing it. You can look at. I mean I think I read a piece that I might have cited one time when I wrote an article on my um, archive of cassette tapes. Someone wanted me to write an art, a book chapter on my archive of cassette tapes. But I think, I think there was something in that piece that um, had to do with just geography and that underground hip-hop as its own genre starts to arrive at the same time that the Midwest really gets located. As a lot, I mean, you would have East Coast, West Coast, Southern. And once, so once you have like all the U.S. regions, kind of major regions, encapsulated, that's about the time. But, 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 um, I presented a conference paper on cassettes. But then a few years later, I presented a conference paper. This was for the International Association for the Study of Popular Music U.S. branch, and I actually think there's a there's a mixtape that you can listen to that's about this. But it was on. Um, when I toured the country, 
um, with AC alone and with um, with okay, let me see. It was AC alone, Ed OG. So Ed OG was like the old school. Um, it was um, yeah, Rasco, right? Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. It was Rasco and it was Masterminds. Um, so, so, so and, I mean, that was just an amazing tour. Um, just for so many things. I mean, I probably every tour is, but but that was just an amazing space to be in. But I was essentially the merch guy. I think my title was um, <laughs> was um, assistant manager. I got on the microphone once, and AC was like, uh, what? <laughs> what did you do last night, and why? Like, he, like, pulled me aside and, like, wanted me to, because I hadn't rapped in front of him before or something. But then, uh, and I'm not sure he, he appreciated, he wasn't being hostile, but outside of that, as the merch guy, you are essentially the front line of the tour. I mean, I'm the person who's most accessible to fans. Yeah, fair enough. So the door opens. If, if so, so the door opens and uh, no one's been on stage yet. They probably aren't going to come on stage for two hours, but I'm there in the merch booth. Yeah, and you're not just <laughs> selling stuff. You're also you're being a salesperson, right? You're supposed to know what the music is. You well, have a conversation and yeah, uh, yeah, y- yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> they wanted me to sell the music, but truth is, a lot of those that product just went around the um, ground control. It was ground control, and I think they went out of business after the tour. But um, so maybe I, but but the um. But, uh, yeah, and, I mean, for anybody who's just, like, again, if you're talking about, we didn't go to Canada, but if you're, and there were reasons for that, <laughs> um, but, if, but if you, um, we were supposed to, but, but if you, um, but if you're in a remote town in, in Canada or in the Midwest, and if AC alone and Ed OG are coming to town, like, and so this is like, you know, we only get a few of these events per year. You're just you're almost ready to soak up the the hip hop from anybody on the bus, especially once this black guy with dreadlocks, you know, who I looked I was younger then I looked I had a cool look let's say, <laughs> but but um but so yeah so so I mean it's different you'd see different things going on but but I'm the front lines, so to anybody so my paper was essentially on um it was I was given about twenty CDRs over the course of that tour by like artists like here's my cdr here's here's my cdr and 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 i mean i don't i mean in some ways i think people wanted these cdrs to get on the bus to to and and one of the things i talk about in the presentation that's not an article yet but i talk about is to what degree do i mean in one at one sense you could see this as please listen to my demo like maybe if we give this to this guy and he plays it on the bus and AC alone hears it, you might say, oh, call them up. We want to get them on the next record. Or maybe, and I think I'm more strongly connected to this idea, they just want to say, hey, I make music too. And I want to share my music and show that we're all participants in the same thing. But so, but I wrote this, but 20 CDRs is like, I was listening to the music that I needed to listen to to sustain myself on that tour. So I wasn't listening to these CDRs. I probably listened to a couple of them, but not much at all. But 10 years later, I pulled out this box and I started listening to them all and I made a mixtape with like one song from each CDR. Yeah. But what to bring this full circle, the point I want to raise is I realized there's another way of um, determining what is underground and what is not underground. And that is um, how easy is it, how, how much direct access does the packaging give you to the artist? So... If you get a, a, a 
Kendrick Lamar CD. <laughs> if you want to contact Kendrick Lamar, you're going to find nothing on that CD that helps sure. you get in touch with Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, yeah, I, I to, to, to use extreme cases on a like these, a lot of these CDRs would have phone numbers on them. Yeah, just like some, some like would have. Right? <laughs> so one had like it would have or email addresses. One would have that's a, they there was a note like that's a zero, not an O. <laughs> and and one said I think like if you call this number, ask for Josh. And it's like yeah. that's the extreme of please, please reach out to me. And I think that one way of sort of thinking about this relationship between independent underground and it's just one of many, but I think that it can be a telling way is how accessible is the artist through the packaging. Yeah, a hundred percent. I do want to end up bringing it back to, to tapes to, to some degree. Um, just because I, I find that aspect of it fascinating. Um, there's a number of things that I wanted to talk about in terms of the, the tape stuff. So one of the fascinating things about the article is how kind of like a set has turned into this manifestation of, I guess, the DIY aesthetic. Um, and that was kind of per- um, perpetrated by the, the scene anyhow. Um, and as evidence for this, you end up kind of sampling, I think it's over like a hundred of these Bay Area rap tapes. Um, and kind of attempt to, to recognize these patterns and describe them. Um, and some of the, the pullings from that is fascinating. I don't have the exact article up in front of me, but the kind of as you describe, it's a lot of handwritten text. It's mm-hmm. photocopied machines. Um, it's or photocopied covers, um, sometimes no cover at all. Um, it's meant to look DIY. Um, and there has to be a reason for that because... If in a lot of these cases, in some cases it's not going to be so, but in a lot of the cases, um, I don't think these artists would have had a problem pressing up, say, 500 or 1,000 of these tapes professionally and then distributing them. Um, I don't necessarily think they would have had a problem selling them out anyhow. Um, clearly, there's a deliberate choice beyond just um, necessity or cheapness that um, facilitated them to go this route. Um to some degree, I think that probably plays a factor in it, but they, I think they had other routes, but they chose deliberately to stay to this aesthetic um, because I think that this aesthetic rang true to some sense of, again, I'll, I'll bring it back to this term of authenticity, but um, there was something authentic about being DIY. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would... Um, and, yeah, I think that... One is, well, one is if, if you can't, I mean, if you think about this as two different art worlds, let's say, and I'm, I'm actually referencing something that some colleagues of mine write about, but if you reference, you're not going to be able to do the major label stuff as well as they are. So it's in some ways making this very clear distinction. And making, and making a clear distinction. I mean, in some senses, I think it, 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 having a DIY packaging aligns with some of the challenges that people might have had in terms of sound quality. Well, and, and I say challenges because, I mean, I, I think in some ways people embrace tape, tape piss, but in other ways, this is just how it is. So, so we're going to embrace it because it's how it is. But if we could get it cleaner, would we? Maybe. 
I think sometimes with the music, I do reference a few musical tracks where I think people would sample and run it through tapes or do other things to make it sound extra muddy. I, I know of a few examples of that. Yeah. But um, but in in some ways, yeah, you you want distinction. I, the thing I can connect it to, and I'm sorry to keep drifting away from cassettes, but well, this oh, isn't well, just it's... just. So I'm working in Amoeba. I Amoeba has a, a thousands of cassette tapes and thousands and thousands of CDs by 2000. Um, you they had a policy where you could essentially take anything used home without paying for it and just pay for it later. And as employees, we got huge discounts. There was just really incentive to like go through and grab anything that was used or just just buying anything. Um, there was way more music there than I could possibly afford to buy, but at the same time, I wanted to continue to listen to underground hip-hop. So I just know that, and I can't tell you exactly what my model is, but I would just kind of go through the, the racks, and something would jump out at me about, it, more often a CD, I would say, at that time than a cassette, but something would like, something about this cover makes me curious and want thinking that this is something I would be into. Something about this cover makes me think it's not something. And it was it, it's really that, I mean, it's partially that DIY look and some of that hand-drawn stuff, but also sometimes it's just something that almost doesn't look like a hip-hop album. Like, if it looks like a hip-hop album, you'd be like, okay, yeah, this is just some standard, trying to be kind of standard hip-hop. And you were much more curious about um, something that was in hip hop, and you know wasn't misfiled in hip hop, but that didn't look like a hip hop album at all. Yeah, I think there's kind of, I think there's a style that becomes identified um, in any different era, right? Like if you end up looking at a '90s commercial, for example, you can usually identify that it came from the '90s, um, and as we as consumers kind of go through life and have our own um, kind of curate our own taste. We become subconsciously, I, I think, familiar of these different styles and we know what to kind of look out for and gravitate towards. Like even now there's a, there's a large resurgence of, um, kind of, I guess, indie record labels that their whole purpose is instead of putting out any kind of new music, um, let's go through and find these really rare random rap stuff from local communities across the world um, that people have been searching for and searching for, and they're super pricey if you want to buy them on Discogs, like $500, $600 for an old tape or whatever. Let's find those things, let's reach out to the artist, um, and let's re-release those in limited numbers. We'll release 200 pieces of vinyl, whatever it ends up being. Um, um, and I'm I'm a sucker for that. Like th those are the type of material that I, I gravitate towards, and I try to follow all of those labels, and I, I really keep my eye out. But there's trends that um, that come with that, right? And even just in terms of the album covers, as you're talking about, um, I think there is. Um, overall trends and patterns that emerge, um, let it be maybe like a black and white uh, kind of photo of the artist um, just kind of chilling there and maybe like a hard kind of masculine type pose. Um, there's these trends that kind of identify that this is probably the type of music that I'm going to end up liking. Um, and yeah. I think that speaks volumes in terms of cover art. I think that's what cover art is supposed to do. Um, I, I don't... 
I, I don't like the idea of encouraging an artist to just follow the trend. Um, but at the yeah. same time, that trend really helps you sell because consumers are looking out for trends. Yeah, and and it's it's com- it's complex because they're they're I mean, especially talking about I think independent hip hop and the moment of independent hip hop that we've been talking about a lot, but really anything you want it to be in it needs to be consistent with the tradition enough that it is what it is it claims to be, but it also needs to be pushing that tradition and and doing something different. So um, if you're looking for hip hop and if it looks too much like just any, especially at this point where I think within independent hip hop, artists and fans, there was this fiercely independent underground idea that we do not, we are not, you know, there are a few major label artists that I'm fans of, but I'm not, I don't want this to be just another major label artist. You would want to make sure that whatever that cover was, it distinguished itself from the cover of, um, um, you know, the Mace album, let's say, just to sure. throw someone out there. Um, but at the same time, you, you, you're right. It be, there, then there starts to be develop a, a certain pattern and a certain thing that makes it identifiable. In little ways, that's sort of what genres are for as well. Just like as long as I knew it was in hip hop, I would be looking for things that were different. Yeah, of course. And that's like um, the, the, and I forget the, um, political figures that were in charge of it, but the parental advisory sticker, anyhow, like it had the complete opposite effect, right? Like the whole idea was to reduce the amount of sales and kind of censor this type of music. Um, but people just were like, oh my God, like let's go out and buy anything with this parental advisory sticker because right? it means it's going to be rap music and uh, that's yeah. the type of shit I like, right? Um, yeah. So those, those clues, those, um, whatever it ends up being to kind of indicate that something is rap or something is the style of music that you gravitate towards, um, you're going to end up pursuing those. Yeah. And if, I mean, and the other thing I, I mean, taking it back to cassettes, the thing that I, one of the things I think about that article that I, I, I have continued to appreciate, and this wasn't my idea. I was citing someone else, but, 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 but it wasn't, but it was this idea that in some ways you're also kind of creating an exclusive force field by releasing cassettes in the late 90s and early 2000s. And that is you have to have a cassette player. And it is saying this isn't just for everybody. This is for people who are invested in this kind of music and have been invested enough in this kind of music to have this cassette player. And I I remember at one point, in time, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, but I remember at one point in time, like not long after this article came out, or around the time this article came out, I was looking up, um, I was looking up, um, I was looking at some used cassettes and the prices for them, and there was one cassette by Eli that was really expensive. Yeah, and, imagine. And but this cassette was the only one that had not been released as C as CD. Gotcha. Like, so the, like there the was other a point re-releases or re Yeah, there was a point where gotcha. Living Legends pretty much went through, and, and a lot of artists, I think, or at least I know Living Legends went through their old catalogs and made CDs of of everything that had been released as cassettes. Yeah. Um, but this was this was the one, and I was a fool because I think what I did, at least not in all cases, but in a couple of those cases, I gave the cassettes to someone and got the CD. 
and now then I'm like, hey, do you, do you? And they probably just threw the cassette away because like, hey, you should check out this music. But I, it's, yeah, so that was before I realized the unique value of cassettes. Um, so like a handful of them, once I had two copies, one on CD and cassette, I gave the cassette to someone. But um, it was the one that you, so you essentially could not access this music. Um, that's the and, only way that you can actually hear yeah, it. That's and, the case even now, even with the internet, a lot of this material just hasn't surfaced online. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that's, um, I have this, um, I have this June Dax cassette. That every two or three years, the same person keeps like upping the ante. Here, I'll give you all this other stuff for it. And I'm like, no, that's my favorite cassette too. I'm not giving, I'm not trading that. Um, which is, yeah, it's, it's, Great stuff. And actually, June Dax reminds me, um, she, I mean, just reminds me that when you had asked before about, um, collaboration, I, there were some rich collaborations with Hawaii, actually. Oh, wow. Between California and Hawaii. I only know a couple artists that have came out of Hawaii, and it's been relatively recently, and I've, I've interviewed them, um, maybe 10 years ago or so. Um, I'm not really aware of any, like, Hawaii. I think the crew was called Light Sleepers. That's I think that was the name of the crew, and and June and I have like one of their old cassette tapes that June Dax she was part of um this crew called Private School, and she has her own stuff as well. Um, but she um she was on that old cassette, and I just knew that I think she was from Hawaii. She traveled a lot back and forth, and a few. I mean. There was a big. I'd have to go back and look at my look at look at my notes and like flyers and stuff but i know that shane did a big um concert in november of 2000 um in san jose i think it was i I think it was to get um it was to it, it, it was sort of a memorial concert i think it was to get a gravestone for someone um i'd have to look back at my at my there's a video of it but i just remember there were a few artists who would travel to that show from around the country as well. By the way, including from Hawaii. Hour. We are past our hour mark, so if you do end up needing to go at any period of time, just let me know and we can stop the conversation. Okay, maybe another 10 minutes? Okay, yeah. That I'm enjoying fun. the conversation. Um, one of the things here then, um, it, it, again, to kind of bring it back to, to tapes, but um, I think when we're talking about how tapes have become the... Um, or had become at a period of time, at least, this kind of symbol of true hip-hop or true kind of underground hip-hop at the very least. Um, I think a large portion of it, at least from my experience in doing interviews here in Canada and seeing a lot of the same sort of comments occur, um, is this idea of pause tapes and just the fact that that was a lot of kids' first introduction of how to make hip-hop music um, was with a pause tape. You'd take a little snippet bit of a um, instrumental track or maybe at the end of a song the instrumental would end up playing for a few more seconds and you would take that and you would loop it and then you would just um, kind of pause and rewind the tape and then you would record a little bit more and then you would eventually end up having an instrumental that you could rhyme on um, that idea of a pause tape is I think 
it happened all across the country is a really cheap and innovative way that you could end up making some sort of music without the need of a sampler or anything like that. Um, so a lot of kids that didn't have a lot of resources at the very least, um, and especially kids that came from locations that were maybe a little bit separated away from places that would have even like an MPC or an SB 1200 or something like that. Right. Um, they would end up gravitating just towards the, the tape. And then their first few tapes that they would end up distributing around like local schoolyards and stuff um, would end up just being kind of renditions of their pause tape. Um, I see that a lot. And I feel like that probably had something to uh, contribute at the very least to this idea of um, cassettes being not only this DIY aesthetic, but also cassettes being... Um, this kind of medium for rough raw and i think raw is a really key word there but um this kind of true um piece of of hip-hop culture yeah i i would completely agree um i i, I you remind me of uh, i a few a handful of people talked to me about that i think they mentioned um Tribe Called Quest song, The Luck of Lucienne, might have like 40 seconds of instrumental outro. So that's a yeah, good that's place to, really so that's boring, a good place right? to begin from. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, cassettes are, I'm just speaking off the top of my head right now, but I'm quite certain cassettes, I don't think there has been a medium that has been as just kind of as friend, as user friendly in terms of both recording and producing, I mean, maybe the, like, like you could think about, you could think about digital recorders today, but until we get to the last 10 or 15 years, um, for all that time to have the capability to both, um, consume and produce to make that linkage between consumption and production is something that the cassette tape, I mean, CD, even when you could burn CDs, you couldn't do it like that. You still can't do it like that. So that, and that's just, I mean, that's, basic any 10 year old can kind of figure out press record <laughs> okay let's stop and let's go so it's just it's really accessible really user-friendly and a great way to make that transition yeah and then you, you're right you're you're suddenly you get to practice some stuff i mean yeah there's there's a lot going on there it's hands-on right yeah um you're completely. much more because it's hands-on, you're much more active in that process rather than putting a CDR into a computer and then just pressing rip um, or burn. Um, those are pretty inactive positions in terms of actually making music or making any sort of distribution uh, yeah. of your music, whereas a tape is, is super hands-on. And they don't even work as well. You know, they. Yeah. I mean, they, they don't... Like, even, even as a teacher... If if I have an option, I mean, I if, if if I really have an option, and maybe part of it's because I'm old school, but if I really have an option, I would much rather, if I'm going to show five minutes of a video, I can just cue that. I, I, I can bring in a VHS tape, and if there's a VHS player, I can just cue it up and play it. If it's the DVD, sometimes you got to, like, well, where does the, the chapter begin? And maybe it doesn't begin right where you want it to. If it's a, uh, I mean, there those capabilities with YouTube, but it's a little bit more sliding it along. It just feels like it's so, it's much more capable, as you say. Yeah, fair enough. 
One of the things that you end up mentioning in the, the article, um, again, in reference to cassettes um, and in reference to the conversation in terms of value um, is to the layperson that's not really aware of, of what this is. If they come across one of these DIY tapes in the store, um, they're going to walk right by it, right? They're, they're not going to think anything of it um, because it doesn't it doesn't come across as valuable. Um, yeah. But to the person that is involved in that culture, that's the most valuable item in that store. Um, yeah. I think that's an interesting, um, I guess, phenomena as well to, to really look into. Yeah. I, I, I mean, what it has me thinking of actually, which, which, yeah, I, I think like, like what signals value to someone, but what it actually has me looking into, and this is something where I, I will admit for all my, um, Hip hop knowledge, and I, I, in some ways, when I was in the Bay Area, I did grow up with hip hop, and was largely moving in communities of people who were five to ten years younger than me. So part of my having been a pretty much avid hip hop fan since 1985 or 84 meant I knew all this stuff that sometimes they kind of knew, but were going back and learning. But still, one of the things, one of the learning curves that I really needed to educate myself on, and and, and still have to. I mean, I'm not going to claim any huge expertise. Is uh, is is graffiti writing, and yeah. I mean you can you can be you can you can if 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 you're a graffiti writer, and a friend really presses on me, he's like, that's the language of the streets, and if and if you're a graffiti writer or if you know to notice it, you can you can see this dialogue going on in your community. You can see who's getting up. You can see what where where things are and what's being and even just the stylization of interpretation like what's being said or 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 which what different conversations are taking place between people to someone else yeah they see something up there but they don't even look at it like it's not that they don't see it at all but they don't notice it at all and and it's, yeah, it's somewhat of the language. same yeah and it's somewhat of the same way a fascinating i don't know if i don't know if i'll be able to bring this back to cassettes but a fascinating thing about graffiti is if you're um I mean, if you're really doing graffiti for activism, and if you're trying to get a message across, then you, you're probably stenciling something, or you're making sure it's legible to everybody. You want them to read, you know, F the police or something, defund the police, whatever it is, you want people to be able to read it. If you're doing it for an internal, the stylized form is really for an internal community. It's for the in So the more stylized it is, the more exclusive it is, and the more kind of just universally legible it is, the more it's about recruiting, building a community. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess if I'm trying to bring that back to cassettes, I guess there's a way that that imperfect stylization becomes something that only speaks to people who are kind of aware of the underground and value it. And, yeah, it would just be like, what the heck is this <laughs> to somebody else? Yeah, that concept of maybe like a hidden language, yeah. um, I feel like is is really interesting, and there's probably lots that you could really un unpack there. Is that work that you're currently kind of working on, or? Um, I mean, not not so much. I mean, one of the courses I teach is on black aesthetics, and I think in thinking about black aesthetics, you can think about coded languages, and you can think about the ways in which. Um, Things can have double meaning and the ways which you can just have hidden, hidden communication. So that's something that, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's in my teaching to a certain degree, but, um, now these days I'm, I'm not as, 
Let me see. I don't. I'm, I'm kind of transitioning away from hip hop. Tell you the truth, I'm doing a lot more stuff in terms of like R and B right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, out of curiosity, why the why the switch to something like R and B? Um, let me see. Well, one, I consider myself a hip hop historian. Yeah. I mean, even the stuff we've talked about today, most of what I've been able to speak about is at least 10 years old, if not 20 years old. And then you get into the 30 year old stuff and I, I know a lot. Um, so, so, um, when you get a label as a hip hop artist, I, I mean, not as hip hop, as a hip hop academic, you know, people ask you questions about stuff that's going on. You know, I don't own a Jay-Z album. I'm just being telling you the truth. I own one Kanye West album, and it's because someone, and they, they, we're talking about artists who've been making music for 20 years. But, and that's because a student of mine said, oh, you really should get College Dropout. And I was like, okay, tell me, give me five, give me five albums I should get. And, and I, 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 I appreciate the student enough. Um, he he's a, he makes beats and puts out mixtapes. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll listen to the stuff you tell me to. But um, so I I just you know when you're pulled into these conversations as a hip hop expert or something like that among young people, we're I mean, one even the stuff I'm expert on is the stuff that you and I know more about that no one's ever heard of. But just uh, I mean, you just take a random group of. 100 people no one's ever uh, who know something about hip-hop no one's ever heard of um the other thing yeah the, and the other thing is just especially when you're brought out into those spaces i'm not going to i'm just not going to do the work of educating myself on popular hip-hop of today in order to maintain this identity and i'd rather just sacrifice the identity and say i'm, I'm a historian I'm also a little. Do you need to have that identity, though, in order to, Uh, uh, or not the identity, but do you feel like you need to end up, um, I guess, staying up to date with what's currently, say, popular, or even what was popular in the past? Um, Because I'm sure your knowledge about, like, I don't know, like Diddy and Mace and Bad Boy is probably not as extensive as your knowledge on Living Legends. Um, Yeah, that's exactly when I was depart. Yeah, that was (laughs) that's the moment. (laughs) Yeah, um, well, Alex, you might you may go through this, okay? It it's kind of it has to do with when a label gets attached to you, okay? So first yeah. of all, you I, there's that label, and I've lived with this label for 20 years. I continue to live with it, but 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 it's when a label gets, but then it's the when you're um brought into spaces to speak about something. Yeah. Um. So if you had been a um a reporter from the Chicago Tribune, and if you wanted me to talk about what's going on with, I don't know what, I don't even know, but this popular rapper t- t- today and their new song about about yeah. protest, I would have been like, no, find somebody else. I mean, I, I don't, I can't speak about that. And, and um, particularly, and I guess I'd even say particularly more when a lot of the speaking opportunities that I have are among young people. Um, these young people aren't going to want to hear about something that came out when they were born. I mean, and, and there is, I mean, it, they are to a degree if it's packaged as we're talking about hip hop history, we're talking about this moment, we're talking about this independent space. But when you're just kind of brought about, like, this person knows about hip hop, so we're doing something on hip hop and social protest in the summer of 2020. <laughs> you know, I'm like, that's not my thing. Um, 
so so it's just i mean it's more just trying to it's more just a gradual a, st- a gradual and i'm trying to distance myself from that but it's funny like the opportunities i have and these are opportunities to speak these are opportunities to write chapters for books these are opportunities to review articles the opportunities i have are mostly around hip hop and and to some degree i don't just want to say no to all these opportunities because they are opportunities but i've been saying no to more of them so so i think that that's kind of how yeah and the other thing is and i actually have a book chapter that i believe is coming out on this cuz i think the book is moving into production although it might be another year the other thing is you know i i'm concerned and I'm deeply concerned about this. I'm concerned that we still have this term hip hop, and I think it's still, I mean, I know there are these other kinds of sub fields of hip hop that people, that, pe- that people talk about from, from time to time, but, but hip hop is still kind of a big word that's used. Sure. And I'm, I'm concerned that it implies something radical. Or even something progressive, and I'm not sure it's progressive anymore. I mean, I think it, it, certain dimensions of it are, but one of the, this article, one of the articles that I, or the book chapter I, I've, I've written that may come out at some point, talks about how, you know, I, you can see all these headlines like, "Hip Hop Comes to Campus," "College Does a Does a Hip Hop Course or a Hip Hop Class." There's nothing, nothing at all radical or really pushing the envelope about having a hip-hop event. I'm not, I'm not talking about a concert, but like a hip-hop event on campus or a hip-hop course on campus. It's it's very much like the word diversity, where the word diversity once meant something. This day, it's so ubiquitous and so actually standard status quo that it means nothing. Yeah, it's grown beyond that in a lot of ways, and I, I definitely see your point there. So, yeah, so, so when you have... um. When you have people that have no connection to hip hop, but coming up and telling me, informing me, like I don't even know. Oh, did you see this happened in hip hop? This happened in hip hop. I'm like, what is hip hop anyway? <laughs> and, and I think, and that's a natural part of the evolution of anything. But I think there are still people who hold on to the idea that hip hop is actually transformative, and hip hop is like really doing something. And it, it's not. It's much more complicated than I say because to the degree that students believe this and it resonates with young people i think it creates an opportunity to start to get to some deeper issues around hip-hop but it's still just i don't think hip-hop we expect hip-hop to do a lot for us in this world and hip-hop um it's it's contradictory in terms of what of of it living up to the ideals and expectations that a lot of us who have held it dear continue to put on it fair enough with that, I will end up letting you go here, but I, I can't, Kwame, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to speak to me here today. I appreciate it. Um, I'd love to have you back on at some point in the future, um, depending on how this podcast goes. I would like to really try to put an effort in and uh, make it something, because um, I do think these are conversations worth having um, and worth listening to for the most part. Um, I, uh, as someone that's a fan of reading a lot of this material and your publications, um, 
being able to listen to something like this would be something that I would very much enjoy. Um, so I hope that this is a, a kind of a long-term thing, and I would love to have you back on at some point in the future. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It was really an honor to um, to to engage with someone who's done a <laughs> done a, familiar with my stuff. Like that's that's I could I could tell that you knew these articles and the book well, and that you knew what you were and and underground hip hop in general. But but also, it's a rare opportunity to really talk to someone who's has a deep engagement with your stuff, and that's yeah, I consider it a privilege. So thank you. I enjoyed this. Perfect. All okay. Right. Um, we'll stay in touch. All right. Good luck with everything. You as well. Okay. Bye, Alex. Bye.